So if you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. As we pick up today, I believe it's in verse 10. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 10. We are in the midst of a section of Isaiah where the Lord is talking about what does it mean to really worship him. He's talking about how we need to take care of the poor, the widows, and the orphans. If we don't, then do we really have that renewed kind of spirit that a child of God should have? So in verse 10 it says, If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Both of those means if you're willing to share your food and provisions with one of your brothers that is hungry. It says, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Another way to summarize verse 10 is love your neighbor as yourself. If you were starving, would you eat? Then if you see your neighbor starving, you should want to make sure that they can eat. Leviticus 19 is where we read first, love your neighbor as yourself. So let's go back there. Because when Messiah says that in the New Testament, people go, well, gee, this is a new commandment. God never thought of this one before. But it goes all the way back to the Torah, of course. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8. Teen, 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then it says, I am the Lord. Why does it add that, I am the Lord? Have we forgotten? Yeah, he's the one who gets to decide. It's kind of like the mother saying, because I said so, child. Yeah, it says, don't argue with me. And when it says, love your neighbors yourself, you're specifically talking about, do you want people holding grudges against you, taking vengeance against you? No. So when someone wrongs you, forgive them. If we look at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Verse 19. When the one said to Messiah, good teacher, what things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Messiah said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good but one, that's God. But if you want to enter to life, keep the commandments. And then like the typical Baptist, he says, which ones? And Yeshua said, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and you shall love your neighbors yourself. Does that mean that's all the commandments there are? No, it's just a nice broad spectrum across. It comes from both tablets of the Ten Commandments. The first five were to show your love to God. The other five to show your love to your fellow mankind. So it's not something new. It's something very old. And then in Matthew 22, verse 39... In Matthew 22, verse 39, we're in a section of Matthew where the scribes and Pharisees have said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And Messiah says, what law? No, he doesn't. <laughs> he quotes from the Torah. She has said to me, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Gee, that sounds a lot like the Ve'ahavta that we just sang. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That doesn't mean the others no longer exist. It simply means that every commandment of God is either aimed at loving God or loving your neighbor. If you love God, will you commit idolatry? Eat food sacrificed to idols? Break Shabbat? If you love your neighbor, will you steal from him? Will you hit in his wife? Will you kill his dog when it's out chasing the sheep into the pens? No, you don't do stuff like that. Romans 13, Paul tells us the same thing. Romans 13. Verses 8 and 9. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law, the Torah. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning that's the point of all of the commandments that are about loving your neighbor. There are only the two kinds, love God and love your neighbor. Then in Galatians 5, verse 14, I especially want us to go to verse 514 because of the verb there, fulfilled. That's plurao, the same as in Matthew 5, verse 17. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, all the other commandments about not mistreating your neighbor are all designed to help you show love to your neighbor. Remember, love in English is an emotion. Love in biblical Hebrew is an action verb. How do you treat them? James chapter 2 verse 8 sums up what it really means to worship God. James chapter 2 verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, that's the Torah, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. What's he mean by that? If you treat your neighbor as you would want them to treat you, then you're not going to violate any of God's commandments against your neighbor. Let's go back to Isaac. Right. Yes, I'm so sorry. That word fulfilled in Galatians that you mentioned is pluero. We're Plurao. saying that that is the goal. Plurero. Uh, the goal or making full. Right. 
And you fulfill the commandment to love your neighbor. Yeah. And then the fulfill that we're seeing in James. Do we know about that one? Yeah, teleo is the word for end. It's, it's that word. That word means the goal. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me go back to it. I'm trying to remember, and I'm, my mind's in two different places. So go back to where? Where were we? James chapter 2. There we go. James chapter 2. Thank you. James 2. 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you will do well. Now, let me grab the Greek here. And it's not that I don't believe you guys. I just want to read the whole thing in Greek and see how it reads across. It's Telete. Okay, from 5055. Hmm. I'm not quite sure why they use that Greek word there, are you? It's a translation from the Hebrew. Okay. Let's go on. Because I would have to think about that one. Well, I have a note here for Taleo that, that says Taleo means to perform or execute. In other words, actually do it. Taleo means to perform or execute, so to actually do it. So it's not actually the same Taleo as Taleo versus Telos. Yeah. To bring to completion. Right. In other words, do it. Yeah. Because it's not actually the word teleo. It's a derivation of it from the same verb, though. Okay. That makes sense. To bring it to completion. That's essentially the same as plurao. Sort of. Okay. Back to Isaiah 58. Verses 11 and 12 go together. The Lord, it's, sorry, in verse 10 it began with an if. Verse 11 is the then. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought, and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So what kind of water are we talking about in verse 11? Are we talking about physical, literal H2O? The answer is no. We're talking about the living water. So go to John chapter 7. Let's see what Messiah said about the living water. Because you're exactly right. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit, which is that living water Messiah refers to in John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. Where it says on the last day, which is the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's got a special name. It's called Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great salvation. 
That great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is what Isaiah is referring to. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So in Isaiah 58, it says, If you will love your neighbor as yourself, you do it because of your faith, because you've repented, because you've turned from your sins and turned back to the true and living God. Then, verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually. Meaning what? He will be the shepherd that leads the flock along the one path that we read about in John chapter 10. So let's go up to John 10 and see how that fits together like fingers in a glove. Verse 14, John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. If you are saved by faith, then you know God, you know Messiah. And that brings us to 1 John 2, 3 through 6, which you know well enough to just quote it in your mind. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What was he saying there? I lay down my life for the sheep. He was going to be crucified, right? Was that because he couldn't keep from being crucified? He had no power? No. Why did he choose to die then? The only way to save the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. That's the non-Jewish believers. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's what's being referred to back here. Let's go back to Isaiah 58, 11. The Lord will guide you continually. What happens to sheep if you take away the shepherd? They stray. They go all kinds of places. But so long as they hear the voice of the shepherd, they will follow the shepherd, stay together as a flock, and walk the path the shepherd lays out for them. It will satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. That has reference to Ezekiel chapter 37, the vision of Valley of Dry Bones. We'll go there in a minute, but first let's finish this. You shall be like a watered garden. So Israel, being cast out into the world for 2,000 years, has become bone dry. By the time that they start to return back to the Lord and be brought back to the land, and God, when he brings them back, will water them. Exactly what Ezekiel 37 promises. Like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Picture Israel. Have you seen all the wadis as you're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho? Wadis are dry riverbeds, except during the rainy season, in which case they're, they're raging rivers. So they're places where there used to be raging water, but now there's not anymore. That pictures Israel, who used to love the Lord, at least during the reign of some of their kings, but then got as dry as that dried up riverbed. But when God restores them and brings them back to the land and to the millennial kingdom, the waters will flow continually without fail. That's like the spring of water. 
which bubbles up from the ground and it never goes dry. Some of those springs are so inspirational. Have you been to Jericho? The water source for Jericho is a well that had gone bitter and was poisonous and the prophet Elisha made it sweet water. And that's still the water source for Jericho these thousands of years later. You just look at it and you can just picture in your mind the miracle that God did and how his power never ends. So verse 12, those from among you shall rebuild the old waste places. That is, God will bring them back, but it's based upon their repentance, their restoration as a whole nation with the borders that God always promised them from Genesis forward is dependent upon their faithfulness to God. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. The prophet says it's going to be a long time before this gets fulfilled, but it will be. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Let's go to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. In verse 11. In verse 11. It says, you know, you'll be like a water garden. That to me uh, kind of reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Yep. What does a water garden provide? Fruit. Yeah. It brings Easy. forth fruit. Actually. Yep. It can't help but bring forth fruit. Ezekiel 37. What comes immediately after Ezekiel 37? Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog, which happens when? In the day of the Lord. So we come to Ezekiel 37. We're getting real close to the time of the day of the Lord. In fact, we're in the day that we call today. Verse 1, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. So this is prophecy. And set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. What valley is it? Kidron Valley, otherwise known as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. What's on both sides of the Kidron Valley today? Temple Mountain, Mount of Olives, but be more specific. There are graves on both sides. On the Mount of Olives, there's all kinds of graves for Jewish people down the century who said, the Lord returns here first. I want to be here to meet him. On the Temple Mount side, that's where they have the tombs of the kings. That's where you find David and Solomon and all those kind of guys. And it was full of bones. What do you know if a valley is full of bones? What are those people? They're dead. Dead, dead, dead. This is spiritual dead unbelievers without the Holy Spirit of God in them. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. Not just dry but very dry. So he said to me, son of man can these bones live? The prophet being a wise man says, I don't know. He says, so I answered, oh Lord God you know meaning would you please tell me and he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's how you know he's not actually talking to bones, right? Talking about people in the diaspora being cast out into the nations. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. It's a promise of the restoration of Israel back to the land. And they're coming back to life as they find salvation through our Messiah, Yeshua. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you 
with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When that breath enters into them, the word breath in Hebrew is rock. It's the same word as wind and spirit as in the Holy Spirit. So God promises that after he brings the children of Israel back to the land and establishes them in the land with Messiah as their king, they will be believers. So I prophesied, I was commanded, so I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Notice it's not an instantaneous process. It takes time. So here, the children of Israel begin to think about returning to the land. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Israel was restored as a nation in 1948. Were they a believing nation, giving praise to God, serving Messiah day and night? No. But that's what God said. They'll come back together as an unbelieving nation. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath. Four winds refer to war. What war preceded the establishment of Israel in 1948? World War II and the Holocaust. So out of that comes the rebirth of the nation of Israel. O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied, he commanded me, and breath came into them. They lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. That's just so amazing. Put there by that 1967. In 1948, when Israel declared themselves a nation, they were immediately attacked. How many opposing forces attacked them? How many? Millions upon millions upon millions, hundreds of millions. And Israel had how many fighters? Was it 600? Something like that. How many fighters did they have in 1948? How in the world did those few number defeat that entire region? Only God. Only God. So an exceedingly great army, what made them exceedingly great is that God was with them. And the Muslim nations, the Arab nations attacked again in 1956 and then 67 and then 73. Every time, Israel should have been wiped off the map and pushed into the ocean, but for God. When God says, I'm going to restore them, he means I'm going to restore them. Verse 11, and he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Why does he say the whole house of Israel? Remember after the death of Solomon, Israel was divided into two nations. The northern kingdom went into captivity in 722 BCE, and they haven't come out of captivity yet. This is where they all get brought back. Do the northern tribes that were scattered across the world in 722 BCE even know they're part of Israel? The answer is a lot of them don't, have no idea. Does God know? Absolutely, God knows. 
Indeed, they say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. They don't even know they're part of Israel, but God knows. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. Does God put his Holy Spirit into non-believers? No. So this means that at some point here in the near future, all Israel shall be saved, as it says in Romans 11, 26, and 27. For another look at that regathering, go back to Isaiah chapter 11. The regathering has begun. Is there anything in scripture that says it begins, but then it stops? There is not. Once the regathering begins, nothing can stop it. Because it is of God. Isaiah 11, 11, it shall come to pass in that day. We're not in that day yet, but oh, we are so very close. That the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. And then he gives the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. What will draw the people back to the land? Verse 12, he will set up a banner for the nations. That banner is Messiah. They will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah. That's the whole house of Israel. We read about in Ezekiel 37. From the four corners of the earth. Verse 13 says, Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. So the two halves of the nation of Israel are going to be reunited, rejoined. No more enmity, no more hatred. And never again will an invading army come in and take them captive. They'll try. The Battle of Armageddon, every nation in the world tries. But who can defeat God? No one. And if we go back to Isaiah chapter 58, in verse 11, God promises the water. He promises that the... the Land is going to produce. There's going to be great bounty for everyone. Remember, that was part of the promise of, of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Is that when the people are faithful to God, then the land will produce bountifully. We're on the very cusp of those days being fulfilled. Whoops, I have three red letters out here. Let me see what they are. Okay. Everybody's got them. Chapter 58, verse 13. If. What is that word, if? Condition. Do you want God's blessing? Here it comes. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath. That doesn't mean turning away from the Sabbath. It means turning to the Sabbath. From doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight the holy day of the Lord honorable and shall honor him not doing your own ways nor finding your own pleasures nor speaking your own words then you shall delight yourself in the Lord I'll cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father the mouth of the Lord 
has spoken. So let's break this down. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, but it's turning away your foot from these wrong things on the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, we got to know what your pleasure means. Does this mean we can't laugh? We can't tell a joke? We can't play a game of Parcheesi? No, it doesn't mean any of that. What it means is from accomplishing your own needs. That is, it's not the day to go fill the barns with food. It's not the day to go fill the bank accounts, put cash in your pocket. It's not a day for earthly pursuits. It's a day to remember the Lord and his creation. Notice it says, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. Why does God call the Sabbath my holy day? He set it apart in Genesis. Show me. Genesis chapter 2. Let's all go back to Genesis 2. Verses 1 through 3. How many people are on the earth in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3? At most, two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, that's the seventh day of creation, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested. That word rested is the word Shabbat. That's the verb Shabbat. He Shabbated. On the seventh day from all his work which he had done, then God blessed the seventh day. What's it mean to bless it? He sanctifies. He makes it special. He sets it apart. It's different from all the other days. Because, he tells us why, in it he Shabbated, he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So in verses 2 and 3, it uses the word Sabbath or Shabbat twice. This is before mankind falls. How many Jewish people are in the world? None. How many years will it be before Abraham is even born? 1,948 years. It's almost two millennia before there are any Jewish people to come out of the land of Egypt. So why does God not mention the Sabbath again until the Ten Commandments? Oh, he does, really. Okay, let's go to Exodus 16. My point, of course, is that the Sabbath existed long before the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai. It's been the Sabbath from the beginning. Verse 23. Then he, Moses, said to them, the children of Israel mixed multitude, everybody all together. This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. It's holy to whom? To the Lord. Bake what you bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up until morning as Moses commanded. It did not stink nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. 
Today you will not find it in the fields. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened to some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And look what the Lord said. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Notice that's before Exodus chapter 20. The commandments did not start in Exodus chapter 20. They've been from the beginning. In Exodus 20, where we have the Ten Commandments, there's only one that mentions the non-Jews specifically. And that is the commandment of the Sabbath. Verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Not to make it holy, to keep it holy. It's been holy since when? The beginning since creation. Six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. It's not even just for people. It's for the animals as well. For because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see and all that is in them and rested, he Shabbated on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. It's so important that in Exodus chapter 31, God calls it what? The sign that we worship the true and living God. Huh? Let's look. I'm not going to go through all the verses on the Sabbath. You know them all. But Exodus chapter 31 tells us how very important it is. Verse 12, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, If you think, well, the children of Israel doesn't include me, read Ephesians chapters 2 through 4 again. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. What does throughout your generations mean? Forever without end. That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath therefore for it is holy to you. In Leviticus chapter 23. What does God call the Sabbath? Leviticus 23.3. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of whom? Of the Lord in all your dwellings. So let's go back up to Isaiah chapter 58. God told us in chapter 56 that if you are non-Jew and you want to enter into the kingdom of Messiah when he comes, you will keep the Sabbath. But in verse 58, God's making a great promise. In verse 13, as we started. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, that is things to build up your bank account, your wealth, etc. On my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight. What is that word in Hebrew? An oneg. Oneg. That's where we get the name for that little ceremony we do every Friday night where we retell the story of the Sabbath and why it's important. 
the holy day of the Lord, honorable. What's that word honorable mean? Held in high regard. And shall honor him. Notice honoring the day is to honor the Lord. Not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. That nor speaking your own words actually is discussing that which is forbidden. One thing you don't do on Shabbat is discuss pagan gods. Hmm. Munch on that one for a minute. Verse 14, here comes the promises. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. We shall delight ourselves in the Lord if we keep the Sabbath holy. What if we say, nah, 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 we don't want to do the Lord's Sabbath. We'll do, we'll do a Sabbath of our own making. We'll decide what Sabbath should be. Then what does God promise us? Nothing. And I hear that from a lot of preachers. Well, that may be your Sabbath, but my Sabbath is Sunday. No, he's right. His Sabbath is. The Lord's isn't, but his is. Question is, come judgment day, who gets to judge? Okay. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. I'll cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. What do the hills in prophecy represent? Kingdoms. So it means I will bring you into the messianic kingdom. It's like what Isaiah 56 promised. And feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. What is the heritage of Jacob your father? That's Deuteronomy 28. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 28. What did God promise if we were obedient and love him with our whole heart? What did he promise? A bunch of things, right? A bunch of blessings. Starting Deuteronomy 28 verse 1. Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments I command you today that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. Does that sound like Isaiah 58? If we'll keep the Sabbath? And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because, it's not because, what is that Hebrew word? If. It's if. You obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. And blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, that is, your children will be healthy and strong. The produce of your ground, the ground will produce bountifully, no hunger, no famine. And the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks, you'll have so many sheep, goats, and cattle that you won't know what to do with them. How did they measure wealth back in those days? By the animals. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. The baskets where they gather the wheat, the kneading bowls where they grind it and make flour and make bread. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out, meaning can't be defeated in battle. will be secure in your borders. Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. They will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if 
You keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. These blessings are conditional. Do you want them? Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and the produce of your ground in the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, which refers to the rain in its seasons. To give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not be beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, <clears throat> which I command you today, and are careful to observe them. So you shall not turn aside from any of the words I command you this day to the right or the left to go after other gods to serve them. Once, go ahead. Just a matter of practicality, you've been? I'm reading ahead to the curses. Reading ahead to the curses. It looks like all the sickness and evil in the world is really traceable back to simply people not observing God's Sabbath. Yep, it sure seems that way, does it not? It really sounds like, I mean, he specifically says, if you don't observe my Sabbath, all the plagues of Egypt will come up on you. All the sicknesses will come yep. back to you. I'll turn you over to your enemies. I'll take away your wealth. You'll become a debtor nation instead of the lender nation. Yep, sir. And every nation, basically in the world, seems to go through the dishwasher of God's punishment. Yep. And the, the simple, it sounds like the very simple bottom line is you don't keep the Sabbath. Yep. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What is the symbol that our God is the Lord? Do we keep the Sabbath? What's the first thing to go in the fourth century? The Sabbath, the feasts and festivals, and eating clean. Those three things. I think, Wayne, we've mentioned before. Uh huh. We've been reading in Jeremiah today, and of course in chapter 17, there's the bit which says. Um, I mean, the Babylonians are on their way, and he's saying, if only you would keep the Sabbath, forget all the other idolatry and all that, if only you would keep the Sabbath, the city will not be given up, and the king will permanently be there. Yep, that's what it says. God said, this was my bottom line. He said, no way. Yep. Mulaney, you had a question or an issue? When it says in verse 1... In Deuteronomy 28.1, you want to know what those Hebrews words are? I will read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. Um, yep, it should read, the Lord your God. Yep. Adonai Elohecha. Okay, so back to Isaiah chapter 58. Yes, go ahead. Um, maybe this is a, a good spot for you to clarify when 
the scripture talks about in the New Testament that the two commandments that are love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and uh, your neighbor the same. Could you tie that in to the Sabbath is not gone because he gives us those two commandments? Those two commandments simply summarize all the rest. If you do not keep the Sabbath, you do not love the Lord your God. You can tell me all you want to that you do, but God says you do not. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, he says, If you turn away from my commandments, statutes, and judgments, you have forgotten me. You can honor me with your lips all you want to, but when your heart is turned away, then your worship is not valid. Yep. Okay. Yes. Additionally to that, the, the Sabbath is also about uh, giving rest to servants and what have you. Yeah. So if, you, if you're not keeping the Sabbath, you're imposing upon people who should be given rest. Right. Remember, not just uh, people, but the animals. With the court of the Gentiles, they were imposing their thing and stopping the Gentiles having a blessing. Yep. So if we don't keep the Sabbath, we're... we're um, withholding a blessing from God on on others. That's correct. Absolutely true. All right, so did we finish chapter 58, verse 14? Yes. Then we're up to chapter 59. Okay. Yes, ma'am? I have a quick question backtracking maybe. Okay, go ahead. When we were at, in Exodus 16. When we were in Exodus 16, let's go back there. Verse 25. Right. Is that why the Pharisees were trying to accuse the disciples when they were picking the grain? She says, Is that why the Pharisees were attacking Messiah because his disciples were plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath? The answer to that is no. Um, the scripture forbids work on the Sabbath, like harvesting in your fields to bring it into the barn. But there is no prohibition against picking a head of grain and eating it when you're hungry. But the Pharisees had man-made rules and regulations that forbid you to take a handful of grain and to eat it. So you, they were violating not God's commandments, but the man-made rules and regulations. They're saying, how come you don't recognize our authority and do what we tell you to do? You're only listening to God. Yeah. So in the New Testament, a lot of people are confused because the scribes and Pharisees keep saying, Messiah, you're breaking the commandments. But they meant their commandments, not God's commandments. And people in the church think, well, Messiah's going around breaking the Sabbath all over the place, so therefore the Sabbath is not important. He's changed the law. He's changed the law. They just don't understand. It's their man-made rules that they're concerned with. When Messiah came, if you read in the Talmud, it says that they would not bring charges against people in the rabbinic courts for breaking God's commandments, only their rules and regulations. Because they said that the, essentially they don't use the word God but they say the heavens gave us the Torah and now it's none of God's business we'll do with it what we do with it that kind of arrogance does not sit well with God so the only way that we could show someone that the Pharisees were keeping man their 
In Matthew 15 and Mark 7, where he calls them out for doing it. So that's the only place that we have to confirm that, right? I don't know about the only place. About the only thing you can do is when they go to one of those places and say, look, they, he's healing on the Sabbath, and they say he's breaking the Sabbath. Say, show me in the scripture where God forbid healing on the Sabbath. Okay. There isn't one. So what is their concern if God didn't forbid it? It's that they did. Yeah. Hi, Wayne. Yes, sir. Um, I have a question. Uh, this past week we were speaking with a lady about the Word of God, and, of course, she, you know, believes that the Torah was for the Jews and the Old Testament is null and void, basically. She was using the scripture, you got to rightly divide the Word of God, which I know... People today are using that scripture for dispensationalism. What I want to ask wrong. you is, what does that scripture mean about rightly dividing the word of God? That scripture means just as the priests in the temple had to be very careful how they divided the sacrifices into the different pieces, we need to be just as careful with how we handle the word of God to make sure we understand who God is speaking to, what the circumstances are, and in the context in which it occurs. So we need to not be sloppy and just take words out of the scripture and say, see, see, this proves my point. Keep it in context. What's the old saying? If you take the text out of his context, you can make it a pretext. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Brother Wayne, to piggyback on that, uh, others have said about the ceremonial versus civil laws. Is that man-made doctrine as well when they try to say, well, that's ceremonial or, or civil? Yeah, if you go to the commentaries that divide the laws into three parts, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial, there's nowhere it does that in Scripture. Nowhere. Nowhere. If you go to Deuteronomy 30, which is, takes place in the future after Israel comes back into the kingdom with Messiah on the throne, it says you will observe all of the words that I speak to you today. All of them. There is no division of moral, civil, and ceremonial. Doctrinally, they did that so they could exclude and say, well, ceremonially doesn't apply. That's simply because they say it doesn't. Wait. I'm yes. so glad that you covered that about the take a scripture for yourself and, you know, make a plaque out of it, that type of thing. Because I heard a pastor say, I am so tired of people that take a scripture, claim it their own, make a plaque and put it on their bumper and act like that's for them. And he said, look at it in context, like you say before and after what's happening in those scriptures yeah. and you know i didn't realize it but i was feeling like why are we doing this but i didn't say it out loud you know why are we claiming these scriptures for ourselves when it's clearly israel or something else i'm so glad you mentioned that okay good then let's start chapter 59 because it's exciting Behold, yep, what does behold mean? What's coming is really important. Don't miss this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. The 
hand of the Lord is referring to the Lord's power and strength. It's also a term for Messiah. When Messiah walked around the Sea of Galilee, who did he heal? All those who were brought. Didn't matter what the disease was. Didn't matter what the iniquity was. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. It comes here right after the section of Israel. You are so steeped in sin that God won't hear your prayer. But you can repent. You can come back. And if you repent and turn back to God with your whole heart in faith then God has this beautiful plan in store, this kingdom. If you call the Sabbath a delight, he's going to bless you beyond measure. So chapter 59 opens with, well, then why hasn't it happened yet? Why hasn't God delivered on all these promises of blessing that have that little word what all through it? If. If. So here's the answer. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. God could bring Israel back. God could deliver Israel at any point in time. But his ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Verse 1 says, it's not that he cannot hear. Verse 2 says, it's that he will not hear. It's in your court. It's in your court. You fail the if. You haven't repented. So let's go look. Let's look first at Psalm 34, 15. Psalm 34, 15. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are on whom? The righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. So why isn't God hearing Israel's prayers for deliverance? Yep, that's exactly right. Read the next verse. The next verse in this case says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Back in Exodus chapter 3, God did not say, I am that I am. He said, I will be whom I will be. He is to us as we are to him. If we are rebellious, sinful, we break the Sabbath, we break his commandments, we engage in idolatry, and we ask God, why don't you bless us? What's he saying to us? Why should I? Why should I? Exactly. You can't earn God's blessings. I guess you can. Psalm 145, verse 19. Verse 19. Psalm 145, verse 19. God does not break his word. And if he says, if you turn away your ear from hearing the Torah, even your prayer is an abomination, he's not going to change it. Psalm 145, verse 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. In Proverbs 15, 29. Proverbs 15, 29. 
The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. I don't know how many times you guys hear this, maybe because I'm he who sits up front, I hear it more. People will, will call me and they'll, they'll be crying, why won't God answer my prayers? Well, do you keep the Sabbath? No, of course not. How about feasts and the festivals? Well, no. Do you avoid unclean foods? No, eight pigs every day. Why doesn't God hear my prayers? Have you read the Bible? No. Okay. Never mind. I digress. Ah, the truth hurts. When God says he won't, he won't. In Proverbs 28, 9, you guys know it. You know it by heart. By now, you've probably all put it on a t-shirt. Proverbs 28.9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, the Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. So this is what God's saying in Isaiah 59. It's not that I can't hear. It's that I won't hear. If you won't hear me, I won't hear you either. And of course we have to go to John 9 because it's in the New Testament as well. It's not just an Old Testament concept. Whenever I hear people say that the, the commandments, the law, the Torah, that was just Old Testament, was just for the Jews, that's been done away with. My first thought is, are you telling me that Jesus lied to you in Matthew 4.4? 4, when he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If the law has been abolished the Messiah's words were not true. Do you call your Savior a liar? I hope not. But John 9.31 says what? We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Now you see all these Old Testament verses that say exactly the same thing. John 14. You guys know John 14, 15 very well, but we're going to look at verses 12 to 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, <clears throat> because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, <clears throat> that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he will abide with you forever. So people will take a verse like verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it, and say that belongs to everybody in the world. Anybody who asks anything of God, he'll pour out millions, he'll fill your pockets. He will give you Cadillacs and what's that old song? Got to make amends or give me a Mercedes Benz. But it's in the context of verse 15. If you will keep the commandments of God, then God will hear your requests. He will answer every prayer, but sometimes the answer is no. I can tell you right now, I can pray all night long that God will give me a million dollars tomorrow. It ain't going to happen. Because 
Would it be to my benefit? No, it wouldn't. So the Christians out there that are doing Sunday and all of that, and, but there's a lot of them that pray, and they do get answered prayers. So what do you say about that? That's too broad a question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, too broad a question for me. Okay, verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Notice that phrase again, knows him, and how that relates to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. All this is conditioned upon if. If. Wayne. Yes, sir. Going back up to uh, verse 12. Going back up to 12. He will do greater works than these. What, what is Yeshua referring to? The fact that he spread the gospel within Israel and the believers after him are going to take it out to the world. When he says in Matthew... Um, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll take this mountain and cast it into the sea. The mountain in prophecy refers to the kingdom, the sea, or the Gentile nations, that they're going to take the gospel out to the world. God didn't actually mean we're going to be popping mountains here and there like we're playing checkers and chess. Comment, and maybe you know something about this. I've never read a history of what actually happened from the time the apostles were walking the earth until the Catholics took over and pretty well destroyed everything. I've never read what greater works might have been done. It's almost like it's suppressed. We don't know the, the spread of, of the uh, Messianic kingdom in the early years. We know that hundreds of thousands of people came to Messiah. Right. You don't hear anything about it, anything. Right, there's works called the Anti-Nicene Fathers that contain some of that history. And there are two in there, Chrysostom and the other guy's name begins with an A. One's in the western part of the kingdom, the other's in the eastern part of the kingdom. They both testify that the miraculous works, like the miraculous healings and the raising of the dead and stuff like that, ceased with the apostles. And that the, the gospel continued to spread and nations continued to get saved. They don't tell, tell us a lot much more than that. But people are being raised from the dead and healed today. So I, uh, it, I didn't say that God's power has ceased. Yeah. That was just what they said in the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Not everything said by an early church historian is accurate. Sure. Yeah. Wait. Yes. There's a famous story of Gregory the Great. Gregory the they Great? Were, uh, they were coming from uh, a, a service where the text had been about Peter and uh, John at the beautiful gate. Uh -huh. And um, uh, Gregory was with Augustine, and they're walking back through the Vatican, and he's looking, he points out all the, all the um, riches and what have you, and he says... No longer does the church have to say, silver and gold have I none. And Augustine <laughs> said to him, 
No holiness, he says, but neither can it also say, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Interesting. Dustin wasn't impressed. (laughs) Interesting. Okay, let's go to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. I don't know if I put any volumes of the anti-Nicene fathers back there on the shelves or not. I'll have to look. Psalm 66, verse 18. Yeah, we might have to wait till the videotape in the kingdom. Look at Psalm 66, verse 18. Another verse that essentially says the same thing. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Just another way of saying that if you turn away from God and don't get your prayers answered, turn back to God. One problem is that Satan hears, and a lot of times we get answers to our, to our wrong prayers. Uh, and Satan is just taking us away from the kingdom and diverting us. Yeah. I told you an example of that. A friend of mine who was Catholic and kept entertaining Mormon missionaries, and they were sharing their version of things with him. He said one night he was laying in bed praying to God, If the Mormons are right, please send me a a miraculous answer. He said, suddenly an angel appeared in the room and came and assured him that the Mormons are right. They're the only way to God. And he converted then to Mormonism. Do I believe that happened? Yes. Do I believe it was from God? No. Okay, verse 3, Isaiah 59, 3. 4, what is 4? Because... It says in verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have been in his face, so you will not hear. For because your hands are defiled with blood. Talking about the blood of the innocents, the children that they were murdering. I didn't say just like we do today, but only because you said it first. (laughs) The killing of the innocent children raises God's ire beyond measure nor does any wait a minute and your fingers with iniquity the word iniquity often is what lawlessness lawlessness just think of Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 that's the very same lawlessness your lips have spoken lies what does the scripture say about all liars they have their part in the lake of fire your tongue has muttered perversity Hmm. My first note here says, go look at Matthew 7.23. Okay. At least I'm consistent. Matthew 7.23. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. Matthew 13, verse 4. You guys realize, of course, that if the law has been abolished, there is no lawlessness, which means everyone's going to heaven. There is no sin, and we don't need a Savior. 
that should be enough to tell us the law has not been abolished. Say that again. If the law has been abolished, then there is no lawlessness. So no one is being sent into the lake of fire. So there is no need for a savior to save you from their sins because sin is violating the commandments of God if they don't exist anymore. Which is ought to be enough to tell us that the law has not been abolished, just that in and of itself. It's the same argument Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 to the believers that have come out of the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection. He's telling them, well, if you don't believe in resurrection, then Messiah has not been resurrected. If Messiah has not been resurrected, you're still lost in your sins, so aren't you glad there's resurrection? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it is hard to come from your background. Yeah. It takes an awful lot of courage to say, my pastor says this, but I don't believe it. It's even harder. My grandma said this, and now I find it's not true. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels. This is at the end of the age. And they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. He says they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Who said this? Yeshua, Messiah. This is in the New Testament. These are words that are in red. And they will cast out all those who practice lawlessness. And cast them where? Verse 42, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does this tell you about the possibility of being both righteous and lawless at the same time? I have so many people that say, well, this, this lady I know, she loves the Lord with all her heart. And raises pigs. But she doesn't believe that the commandments are, are in existence. So she doesn't follow them. She depends on grace. Grace. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew 23. It breaks my heart. Matthew 23. Verse 28. We'll start in 27 because Messiah is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and a lawlessness. So looking at them, the people thought they were the most righteous people that could ever exist. And the Lord says, they're not. All you had to do is ask them, they tell you. Yeah. All you had to do is ask them, they tell you. Whoops, I got four red circles out there. Let me see. Uh huh. Okay. Romans 
Because I always anticipate. But Wayne, Paul said, let's go look at what Paul said. Romans 6, 19. Romans 6 is where we are in Friday nights. Chapters 1 through 5 are about justification. How do we get saved? Verses 6 and 7, chapter 6 and 7 are about sanctification. Now that we're saved, do we continue in sin that grace may abound? May genoito. God forbid. And it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 19. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, that is before you got saved, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So what does Paul say? Now that you've been saved, should you continue to walk in lawlessness? Just follow the commandments. Paul says, just follow the commandments. Present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, which is also written by Paul, but to a different group that we know were out of the Gentile world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul tells us the relationship between righteousness and lawlessness. Are they the same? Do they intersect? Verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What does he mean by, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Can he have both? Do they get along? Can he have one in one hand and one in the other hand? The answer is no. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Verses seven to nine. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So that's back in Paul's day, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The mystery of lawlessness is Satan trying to persuade people to stop following God's commandments. When did Satan start this? In the Garden of Eden. When did he quit it? He hasn't. He hasn't. From the beginning, Satan tries any and every way to get us to stop following God's commandments. Why? What happens when you stop following God's commandments and start following Satan's instead? You make him God of this world. How did he get to be God of this world? When Adam said, I'm going to follow Satan, not God. We did that. So it says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he, it's actually it. In Hebrew, there is no it. There's he and she, and each of those are used for it. 
It who now restrains will do so until it is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, the false messiah, the beast of Revelation 13, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. He's called the lawless one because of Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. During the seven-year tribulation period, to take the mark of the beast is to promise that you will never again follow God. You will only follow him. He is your God. So he is the ultimate embodiment of the mystery of lawlessness. Let's go to, yes, Sam? What does it mean to say the word mystery for lawlessness? The word mystery in the Hebrew is sowed, and it means a deeper meaning. That there's more to man's fall than just we made a boo-boo. That there is the devil out there from the beginning trying to persuade us to turn away from God. Using false prophets, false teachers, false doctrines. Tares among the wheat. It's a war against God. It is a war against God. And when you look at Job, you know, it's almost like a play of, in a matter of speaking, you know, before the, the spiritual realm. Yeah. Fortunately, we've read the end of the play. We know how it turns out. Go to Hebrews 1.9. Hebrews 1.9. And, of course, we'll start in verse 8 so we know the context, because context is always important. Yes, Susie? Sorry, I remember Daniel sharing only because I was revisiting it this week that sowed is, even though it is that mystery, a deeper meaning is something that we are somewhat already aware of, but not completely aware of all it entails. There's so much more to learn about it. Yep, that's what I mean by a deeper meaning, but you, he's exactly right. He may have explained it better, but that's exactly what I'm trying to get across. Thank you. So Hebrews 1, 9, but we'll start in 8 for context. But to the Son, he says. So who is the Son? Yeshua, our Messiah. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What does God call our Messiah? God. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. How does Messiah feel about lawlessness? Hates it. Who's going to be our judge come judgment day? Messiah. And if we have walked in lawlessness, will he be pleased? Believe it or not, if you go back to the origins of some of the things in Christianity, like the Christmas boar's head, originally it was put forth as this is a way to show God that you absolutely will not keep his commandments and this is going to please God and make him happy. Okay. 1 John 3, 4. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. You know that already. Let's go to 2 Peter 2. By the time the trumpet blows, you're going to be able to quote most of the Bible, I'm sure. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 
2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, talking about those who continued to have relations with human women after the flood, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Notice in verse 8, the end, their lawless deeds. Did Sodom and Gomorrah take place before or after Exodus chapter 20? Before. How long before? 500 years before? And yet the sins they were committing are described here as lawless deeds. Which just assures us that the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God are from the beginning. The very beginning. Uh huh. Let's go to John 8, verse 44. John 8, verse 44. How does God feel about lies? John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil. Uh Uh-oh, who's he speaking to? The scribes and Pharisees. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. First John 2, 4. This word liar is a very powerful word. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. People say, Wayne, you're judging too hard. I'm not judging at all. I'm just reading it. God wrote it. Revelation 21.8 tells us the destination of all liars. Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars 
shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So if any of those words describe you or me, what should we do? Repent. Be repentant now, for time grows short. Back to Isaiah 59. Verse 4. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. This is referring to the fact that even though God has prophets like Isaiah prophesying repent and turn back to God, how many false prophets are there? Hundreds. Prophesying what? Oh, everything's hunky-dory. God loves you just as you are. They even have TV programs. Yep. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. What he's saying here is that their religious leaders are not preaching repentance. One of the things they will tell you in cemetery, I mean seminary, is that your offerings are higher if you don't preach about things like hell and sin. If you stroke people's egos and make them feel good about themselves, they'll put money in your pocket. You know what that money's going to be worth come judgment day? Let's go to First Timothy. Wayne, yes, was um, the word truth there in that scripture in Isaiah referred to the law? Yes, uh-huh. Psalm 119, verse 142, the Torah is truth. So 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 7. A lot of people will tell you these words are talking about me, but let's see. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. You can't depart from the faith if you weren't in the faith, right? Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So where do these doctrines come from? Do they come from God? No, they come from the lawless one. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Forbidding to marry. Is that Judaism? Does Judaism forbid to marry? Does Messianic Judaism forbid to marry? Who forbids to marry? Ascetic Gnostics, which came into Catholicism. Commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That means we should be eating piggies. No, it doesn't. Not at all. If you know the truth, the truth is Torah. Psalm 119, verse 142, you know that pig is not food. All that God created is good, but not all that God created is food. So did God create a pig to be received as food? No. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for. What does for mean? The cause. Don't stop in the middle of the sentence. 
For it is sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be set apart. By the word of God, that's Leviticus 11. Did he tell you you can eat it or not? And prayer. Which means if God said you can eat it, and you thank God for it, don't let the ascetic Gnostics tell you you can't have it. Because what is the essence of ascetic Gnosticism? If it's pleasurable, you can't do it. How many of you like a T-bone steak? Some of you do, some of you don't. God said you can eat it if you give him thanks for it. The Gnostics say, nope, you can't have it. You must deny yourself all earthly pleasure. How many of you like eating salad? If you do, you can't have it. And if you don't, you have to. That's ascetic Gnosticism. You all remember the movie The Da Vinci Code, the albino that straps those chains around his legs till it bleeds and whips his back? That's from ascetic Gnosticism. Verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Yeshua the Messiah, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wise fables and exercise, exercise yourself toward godliness. So reject the doctrines that come from Satan. Embrace those that come from God and walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And since we're in Timothy, go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy was a much younger man than Paul. And Paul was putting him into the pulpit to lead a congregation. And he gives him a lot of instruction encouragement, things to remember, things to concentrate on. And because all scripture is breathed out of God's own lips and is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah who will judge the living and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom. So it's the first thing Paul wants Timothy to remember. There's a judgment day coming, and who's the judge? Messiah is. God is. So who should you concentrate on? The judge. judge. What did the judge tell you? Because he's going to judge you on it. Preach the word. Is that Greece? Greece is the word? No, that's not the word. Talking about the word of God, the commandments, statutes, and judgments that he gives us. In our English Bible, they're called the Ten Commandments. The Hebrew doesn't call them the Ten Commandments. calls them the Ten Words. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. One of the most ridiculous things I have heard our president say lately is that every responsible church supports abortion. How ludicrous is that? 
the murder of the innocent children. Can anybody find me anywhere in scripture that God is pleased when we murder the innocent children? You will not find it. Go to Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. It goes right along with those two scriptures from Timothy. Gehenna, Gehinnom, where they sacrificed those children to Moloch. That lets you know how very much God's not pleased with it. You're right. Deuteronomy 12.32 Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Everyone should have a t-shirt that says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Mm -hmm. Psalm 89, verse 34. God says, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. John 15, 14. Nope, I'm not dyslexic this morning. Not John 14, 15, but John 15, 14. It's another of those if phrases. You are my friends, what? If you do whatever I command you. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. I love that book. It's a short book, but oh, is it full of good stuff. Daniel 12, verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. To turn one from righteousness means to turn them away from lawlessness. Does this sound like turning people away from lawlessness to righteousness is a good thing? A very good thing, much to be desired. Did Messiah say essentially the same thing in Matthew 5.19? Let's see the Lord's own words. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So which is better, to be the least or the greatest? Of course, it doesn't use the word greatest, does it? Because Messiah is greatest. But do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Do you want to shine like the stars forever and ever? Then turn many from lawlessness to righteousness. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 59. Let me check the time. We have plenty of time. Number one says Psalm 119 verse 142. Yep, that's it. 
Isaiah 59, verse 5. They. Who's the they? Those that are following iniquity. Those that are doing evil. Those that are turning away from God. All those things, right? They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Why do they keep emphasizing the vipers here? Let's go to Matthew 3. A viper is a serpent, just like in the Garden of Eden. Who is doing the will of the serpent? Go to Matthew 3. John the Baptist is baptizing at the Jordan River, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here come scribes and Pharisees, whom they would have thought, if you just ask them, we are the cream of the crop. We're the best of the best. And in Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8, John the Baptist says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers. What's he calling them? Sons of the devil. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Go to Matthew 12. It's not the last time they're going to be called vipers. Matthew 12. And we found Matthew 12. Let's look at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers! Exclamation mark. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Why is he saying this to these people? Is their doctrine based upon God's commandments or man-made rules and regulations? We find out in Matthew 15, verses 7 and 8. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. It's not that they don't call God God. It's not that they don't say they worship God. They say they do. It says, But their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So go to Matthew 23, 13. What about those who are misled by their false teachings? Does God say, well, that's okay, you were taught wrong. I'll just hold your teachers responsible. People say that's what God should do. Well, let's see what the scripture says. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you receive greater condemnation. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. When he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. God bless you. So what does this say about those that are mistaught by the scribes and Pharisees? Are they on the road to heaven? They are not. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple it's nothing. Whatever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And you say, whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? And it just goes on and on. So let's go back to Matthew 16, verses 5 to 12. We have an advantage today that they didn't have. Back in the days when the scripture was being written, not everybody had a Torah scroll at home. How many Bibles do we have at home? And how many languages? Yeah. Matthew 16, 5 to 12. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Yeshua said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we've taken no bread. They think he means don't take bread from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Is that what he means? Nope. But Yeshua, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread? but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What was their doctrine? Man-made rules and regulations. God said, remember the Sabbath. Will we remember the Sabbath, or will we do something else? I'm preaching to the choir because you're all sitting here on Sabbath going, we're keeping the Sabbath. Isaiah 59, verse 6. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, aven, lawlessness, and the act of violence is in their hands. What kind of garments are we talking about? Let's turn to Revelation 19.8. Yep, Revelation 19.8. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The scribes and Pharisees think they're covering themselves with these white linen robes. 
made of the righteous acts of the saints, but their acts are not righteous. So therefore, they don't have a fine linen, clean and bright robe, which is the righteous acts of the saints, which means they don't have the marriage robe. What happens to those who show up to the wedding without the wedding garments? They got cast out into where? Outer darkness. Romans 5. Gnashing of teeth. I know we say it's gnashing because of the pain in it. It is. But are they also gnashing because they're hungry and there's nothing to eat? Can you imagine being in a lake of fire forever and ever? There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to ease the pain. Nothing. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Chapter 6, verse 16 do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. This says if you're obeying the commandments of God, you're on the path of righteousness. And if you're obeying other commandments that did not come from God but comes from the evil one, you're on the path of death. Romans 6.23 brings it to a head, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life and Messiah Yeshua our Lord. But Paul said, yeah, look at Romans 7.12. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Does that make you think he doesn't want you to do it anymore? That's not at all what it says. James 1 verse 15 as we're running out of time. James 1 verse 15. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And that's where we'll have to stop for the week. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 7.